Back in the late 1950s, uh, many of you have heard of C.S. Lewis, but back in the 1950s, a guy by the name of Dr. Normal Pittenger published a critique of C.S. Lewis, and among his criticisms was the accusation that Lewis didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. Those were his words about Lewis, that he didn't care much for the Sermon on the Mount. And so C.S. Lewis responded to the accusation this way, As to caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for here means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on their face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a person who can read that passage with tranquil pleasure. Speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, we are in the midst of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount in a series that we're calling The Good Life, Walking Through Jesus' Words. And when it comes to being knocked upside the head with a sledgehammer, I would say that last week's teaching and this week's teaching probably fit into that category. Last week we looked at Jesus' words in verses 38 through 42, talking about how we respond to those who have done us wrong. And this week we look at Jesus' words in verses 43 through 48, talking about loving our enemies. I'm sure you're all excited to have back-to-back weeks of talking about those things. And next week we'll talk about money. Actually, that'll be a little bit later in the, uh, in the series. We'll just cover all of the hard topics and, 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 and tough issues to deal with. And uh, tranquil pleasure is probably not something that you and I associate with these two subjects when we uh, come to, to talking about them. But here's the deal. Liking or caring for Jesus' teachings is not a prerequisite for obeying them and living them out. We don't have to like them to still be called to live them out and to do them. And so let's listen to what Jesus has to say in verses 43 through 48. He says this, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. If I stop there, I think we... Some of us might be okay with this teaching this morning. But but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So this is the last of six illustrations that Jesus gives here in the latter half of Matthew chapter 5 that we talked about from the very beginning. He's telling us what does it look like you know, to live in the kingdom? What does it look like to have a righteousness that, is, that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? What does it look like to have an, a righteousness that comes from the inside out, from the heart? And Jesus here in this last illustration is telling us what it looks like to live righteously from the heart when it comes to how we relate to others, specifically in the context of the enemies in our lives. I was doing a little bit of uh, research this week and um, I, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the term public enemy number one, right? Um, I don't know how much you know about that idea or what's kind of wrapped up into it, but um, I, I found it interesting as I was reading that there have actually been only six, in the history of our country, only six public enemy number ones. And five of them were between the years of 1930 and 1934. So it all started with Al Capone. He was America's number one enemy, public enemy, first 
public enemy number one. Uh, then it moved on to uh, John Dillinger, which some of you may remember that name. Then, and I love these two names, Pretty Boy Floyd, and then Babyface Nelson, and then a guy by the name of Alvin Karpus. I've, n- I've not heard of him. Some of you may have. Uh, And then there wasn't another official public enemy number one until almost 80 years later uh, when that title was given to Joaquin El Chapo Guzman uh, in 2013. Of course, there have been others who have uh, either been at the, it's kind of morphed into the FBI's, you know, most wanted list in some ways. And there have been others who have been deemed public enemies, just not public enemy number one. And certainly there have been others who have fit that bill, but haven't been given that exact title. Maybe we think of someone like Vladimir Putin in our, uh, in our time, in our, uh, in our culture that we're living in, or maybe go back a few years to someone like Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein, and certainly we can think of others down throughout uh, history. And, and I bring those things up, or those, those people up, and, because it, it's, while it's, it's easy to associate those types of people as enemies, right? The reality is that in the context of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus isn't really addressing the tyrants and the terrorists and the public enemies of our world. He's not really addressing the Roman Caesar of that day that lived 2,000 miles away, but he's really addressing the people who may be in close enough proximity to us that we can see and we can interact with them, the, the personal enemies of our lives. Speaking of personal enemies, it makes me think of a song uh, that came out several years ago. The song is called Pray For You. Some of you have probably uh, heard this before, but it's the song that was written by a guy, and um, it's in the context of being dumped by a person that he was in a relationship with. And the words go like this. Remember, the the song title is Pray For You, okay? Um, The words go like this. I haven't been to church since I don't remember when. Things were going great till they fell apart again. So I listened to the preacher as he told me what to do. He said, you can't go hating others who've done wrong to you. Sometimes we get angry, but we must not condemn. Let the good Lord do his job and you just pray for them. That sounds really good, right? Then the chorus goes like this. I pray your brakes go out running down a hill. I pray a flower pot falls from a windowsill and knocks you in the head like I'd like to. I pray your birthday comes and nobody calls. I pray you're flying high when your engine stalls. I pray all your dreams never come true. Just know wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. Song continues. I'm really glad I found my way to church because I'm really feeling, already feeling better and I thank God for his words. Yeah, I'm going to take the high road and do what the preacher told me to do. You keep messing up and I'll keep praying for you. And then the chorus goes again and the song ends with these words. Just know wherever you are, near or far, in your house or in your car, wherever you are, honey, I pray for you. And we chuckle and we laugh, but I think unfortunately that song actually does give us a glimpse into our hearts when it comes to how we feel sometimes. And while, yes, by the letter of the law, this person is doing what Jesus tells us to do by praying for our enemies, right? But I hope that you don't have to do too much digging to figure out that it completely misses the spirit of the law when it comes to loving our enemies and praying for our enemies. So what is Jesus talking about? And what is the spirit behind it when he speaks of loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Jesus begins by saying in verse 43, and we'll walk back through these these verses. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
Now, as with each of the six examples that Jesus has given here in the latter part of Matthew chapter 5, he begins by addressing what they're hearing and what they are accepting when it comes to the religious thoughts and teachings of the day. And what they're hearing isn't exactly in line with what God had originally in mind. Loving your neighbor is, is very much in line with what God had in mind, and you can read through that throughout the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. Certainly, it's also there in the New Testament, uh, much of which comes after Jesus. Um, but nowhere could you find in Scripture to hate your enemy. That, that's not something you find in Scripture, because God never said that. And yet in Jesus' day, hating your enemy had come to be placed right alongside that mantra of loving your neighbor. By the way, I just want to make a side note here. I, I do think this is in some ways a good reminder for us um, that Scripture is Scripture and other things are not. And, and there are certain quips and sayings that sometimes we have in our culture, even in our Christian culture, and they sound true and they sound like they're from the Bible or that they're biblical. And I'm not saying they're bad per se, but I do think we have to be careful not equating those things with Scripture, right? Because we can, we can say these things and they have a little seed of truth in them, but they're not the whole truth. And so we can say, you know, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. Hey, love your neighbor part. That's absolutely true. That the other part, not so much. And I think we have to be careful of just, you know, putting these things out there as though they are Scripture and living our lives by them. And, and it makes you wonder, how in the world did they get to the place where they had this mantra of loving your neighbor right alongside the mantra of hating your enemy? My guess is it probably had something to do with what they were doing with Scripture. They were more probably in the vein of obeying the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law, and in some ways even manipulating the law. Maybe it was something like this. I'm trying to play it out in my mind. What would this look like? Maybe it was something like this. Well, you know, Scripture says that we're to love our neighbor. <coughs> but does it really say that we're to love our enemies? I mean, we don't even really like our enemies. Maybe we can even hate our enemies. After all, our enemies hate us. So why not just hate them? And so over time, that became the mantra. In fact, over time, they began to parse out, who is my neighbor? I mean, I can figure out my enemies pretty quick, but then if I even parse out who is my neighbor, that means I don't even have to love them. I just have to love my neighbor, but I need to figure out who my neighbor is, and I can keep that very narrow, right? That's the question that in Luke chapter 10, when the expert in the law comes to Jesus, do you remember that story? He comes to Jesus, and he, and he says, who is my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Trying to parse that out and figure that out. And really, that's just the nature of us as human beings. We keep wanting to whittle down what it is that God says more and more and more to make it fit what we want it to say. But Jesus, in return, drops a bombshell on everybody. Here's what he says. That's what you've heard, but here's what I'm telling you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute. You said, what? Love our enemies? I mean, that's a wide gap between hating our enemies and loving our enemies, right? There's plenty of room in between where I can just ignore my enemies, where I can just not hate my enemies, where I can just not do bad things to my enemies. There's a wide gap between those two things. And pray for those who persecute me? You mean like pray, I pray your brakes run out? running down a hill, that kind of praying? Not exactly. 
I also think it's interesting that Jesus is talking about enemies and being persecuted to his disciples because one of the things that tells us, it tells me at least, is that being a, a follower of Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, doesn't mean that we're not going to have enemies over the course of our lives. It doesn't mean that we won't have people who persecute us and do us wrong. And just because we work toward being merciful and being peacemakers and hungering and thirsting for righteousness, for things to be made right in this world, doesn't mean that we're going to be at peace with everybody in our world. And having enemies, as difficult as it is, it's not inherently a bad thing. Now, I'm not saying we should go chasing after enemies. That's not at all what I'm saying. Sometimes when you do the right thing, you are going to have some enemies. It could be a sign that we actually are doing some right things when we have people who oppose us or do us wrong. I like what Winston Churchill once said. He said, you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. And I think there is an element of truth there. But the question is, how will we respond to our enemies? And Jesus calls us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. And maybe they were thinking, and maybe some of us think today, well, if we love our enemies and we love our neighbors, then who's left not to love? I mean, there's no one left to hate, right? I've got to love everybody. Isn't that kind of the point? Jesus goes on to say that the reason why we love our enemies is so that we may be children of our Father in heaven. In loving our enemies, we become like God. He goes on to explain what God is like. He says he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What is God like? God is a God who does not discriminate when it comes to displaying and showing and demonstrating his love. He loves indiscriminately. He sends sunshine on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God loves on the basis of who he is, not on the basis of what you or I or anyone else does or doesn't do. God loves because that's his nature. Because God is love. Jesus continues in verse 46. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Interestingly, when Jesus um, asked that question there in, in, in verse 46, 46 and 47, what are you doing more than others? That word for more is the same verb that we talked about all the way back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he says, unless your righteousness surpasses or is more, same word, than that of the Pharisees then you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Same exact word that he uses there as he uses here. And so he's saying, what, what are you doing that's more than others? Okay, you love those who love you. What, 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 how does that set you apart? What are you doing more than others? How is your love different from everybody else around you who loves those who love them? In other words, Jesus is saying, merely loving people who love us is not the standard of righteousness that he's looking for. Simply, simply loving the people around us who love us and give us something and offer us something isn't the standard of righteousness. That's good. It's not a bad thing. But it's not the standard that Jesus is looking for. It's certainly not a righteousness that surpasses that of, of the Pharisees. I mean, everybody does that, right? 
Jesus says even the tax collectors do that. Even the pagans do that. A majority of people in our world do that. Like if we love each other, how are we different? How are we different than most people in our world if we simply love each other? Now, somebody might argue we don't even do a good job of doing that sometimes. But that ought to be the bare minimum, not the standard. There's nothing that sets you apart in loving those who love you. But Jesus says if you really want to be the light of the world, and stand out, and call attention to your heavenly Father, then love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute you. Love those who don't love you. That's different. And then, just when you think it can't get any more challenging, Jesus wraps up the section with these words. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Great. Got this covered, right? This is where, though, I think context is, is helpful uh, and important because a lot of times when we read things like this, we think, okay, I've got to be perfect. Jesus is talking about being morally perfect. That means I can never have any kind of emotions negative-wise, and, you know, once I do, then I'm done for. Um, I, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about morally perfect here. Remember, the context that Jesus is talking about is, in, is love, loving our enemies, loving those who, who, who do us wrong. And that word perfect carries with it the idea of whole or mature or complete. In essence, I think Jesus is saying this. Now, this doesn't make it necessarily easier, but I think this is part of what Jesus is saying. Love isn't complete and mature and whole if it doesn't include loving our enemies. Doesn't mean you can't love But your love is not complete and mature and whole if it doesn't include loving those who do you wrong. Loving our enemies. It's been said of tea bags that you don't really know the strength of the tea that's in it until you actually put it into hot water. And the same, I think, can be said for the quality of our righteousness. And to Jesus, we are never more righteous. We are never more like God than when we are in the hot water of dealing with our enemies and we respond by loving them and praying for them. You know, so often we talk about love and perfect love in the context of a a husband and wife relationship and a marriage relationship. And that is a beautiful picture of love. The Bible talks about that. But really, I think in many ways, Jesus is pointing us to say that Perfect love is really on display when you and I love those who don't love us. It's on display in how we treat those who don't always treat us the best, when we love our enemies. So let me close today by giving you three very practical reflections when it comes to doing that. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying we're going to walk out here, transform people, and it's all just going to be, you know, a piece of cake. But let me just give you three things. And the first is this. We need to understand that love is more than a feeling. It is an action. Love is more than a feeling. It's it's a verb. It's an action. And by the way, this is true across the board, not just when it comes to our enemies and dealing with our enemies, but specifically when it comes to Jesus' words here and, and how we read this passage. I think sometimes it's easy to think of it in terms of a feeling, right? So I need to feel love for my enemies. Now, do I think that at some point when we are mature and God is working on us, it's not something we're doing, it's something God is doing in us, it's a process, 
Can we get there? That's the goal, right? But we think we've got to feel it in order for it to be real. And so there's no way I'm ever going to feel love toward him or her after what they've done to me, right? But I think this has far less to do with feelings and far more to do with actions. It has to do with a decision to do what Jesus talks about later on in the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get there in a a few weeks, when he says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, so in everything, do to others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. It does not say do to others what they have done to you. Do to others what you would have them do to you. Love is more of a verb than it is a feeling. It is an action. We don't have to wait to feel it to be able to do it. I mean, in in a simple way, how many of you have kids that you don't feel like doing a whole lot of things for your kids in certain moments? Now, I understand the stretch from doing things for my kids to doing things for my enemies is a long way, but I'm just saying we get the concept of doing things because we love and and acting on them, not necessarily having the feeling, and you may not have the feeling of loving your kids sometimes. We won't go down that road, though, you know, but there's, there's, there's times for that, too. Uh, or maybe you just don't like them very much in that moment. But we don't have to be able to feel it to be able to do it, nor do we have to beat ourselves up if we don't feel it. I, I think part of it is just we need to do it and then allow God trust in God that he's going to work on our hearts and on our enemy's heart. Speaking of trusting God, the second reflection is this. Don't forget, we have the genes to be able to do this. No, I'm not talking about J-E-A-N-S and the clothing that you have on, but we we have the genes, G-E-N-E-S. I I find it interesting. I was thinking about this. So um, we we talked a a couple weeks ago about how um, in... Jesus brings up Satan for the first time when he talks about lying and deception. And then I find it interesting that this is the first time he brings up God as our Father in the, whole, in the entire Sermon on the Mount, and it has to do with how we respond to our enemies. And he tells us that God is our Father. God is our Father. We're related to God through our relationship with Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, To all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. And so love comes from God. Love comes from being born of God, from being a child of God. Love comes from knowing God. The point is, love finds its source in God, not in us. And I love what Romans chapter five, verse five says, that God has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. God's given us the the, the tools, i.e. himself inside of us to help us to love the way that he loves. The Holy Spirit is, it's not gonna be exact, comparison, but I I like this idea, at least in in my brain. The the Holy Spirit is kind of like God's DNA living inside of us. We're made in the image of God, but we have the Holy Spirit, like God's Spirit actually living inside of us, His genes, His nature. And certainly we're learning how to grow up into that and live out of that, but we've got God's genes. And they're the genes of a God who causes the sun to rise on the righteous and on the unrighteous. 
and, and he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous, on the evil and the good. He's not, indiscrimin- or he's not discriminatory or partial in how he shows his love. And while that doesn't mean that we're always going to get it right, right? You're not, we're not always going to get it right. What that tells me is that we can love the way God loves. We can. Now, we may not want to, and we may not always get it right, but we can love the way that God loves because we have his genes. And so we don't have to lament over the fact that we don't have what it takes to do this because none of us in and of ourselves has what it takes to do this. But the good news is he does. He does. And he lives within us through his spirit. And then third and finally, how we respond to our enemies is an opportunity, perhaps the greatest of opportunities, especially in our day and age, for Christ to be seen through us and through our lives. There are few teachings of Jesus that are more distinct and unique than this one right here. What Jesus has to say about how we relate to our enemies and those who do us wrong was revolutionary 2,000 years ago, and it is no less revolutionary, probably maybe even more revolutionary in some ways than it is today, particularly when it's lived out. In fact, consider this. Do you know where in the Bible, some of you know this, do you know where in the Bible that followers of Jesus are first called Christians? Some of you know that, that answer. But the place where uh, followers of Jesus are, are first called Christians is in Acts chapter 11 in, in the city of a city called Antioch. And when you read through the flow of the book of Acts, I think you find a big part of the reason why they were first called Christians. Uh, because in Antioch, we have the, 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 one of the, if not the first church, um, where you've got a significant portion of non-Jews especially Greeks, specifically Greeks. So a, a huge section of non-Jews coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ, learning about Jesus Christ, alongside a huge portion of Jews. All together, under one church roof, all under the name of Jesus Christ, all becoming as one family. And the reason that's so unique, now we may think about, that's no big deal, that's, that's not that big of a deal. But contextually, The reason this is such a big deal is because for a long, long time, up until that time, there had been a a tradition of just anger and hostility and enmity, especially between Jews and Greeks, but overall between Jews and non-Jews. And yet, it's in Antioch that Jews and Greeks were coming together on the common ground of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And that community came to be known in large part because of that definitive act of of loving their enemies, not hating their enemies, but loving their enemies along with their neighbors, came to be known as Christians. And they were coming together after centuries of being apart. That's what it meant to be a Christian in that culture, to be kind of people that would love and pray for their enemies. What I find interesting too, and I won't get too deep into this, but that, that term Christian actually many people think it was a derogatory term toward Christians. And it may have been. But either way, what, what it did is set them apart. They were different. 
Now, they may not have been seen in the best light, but you could not deny that they were different because they said, why in the world would you love your enemies? Why in the world would you do that? And they berated them. They made fun of them. But they could not deny that they were different. And Jews and Greeks, loving more than just their own in Antioch, made it very clear who owned them. Jesus Christ. I heard a story, and I'll close with this, about a remarkable woman living in Ethiopia. She had grown up in a Muslim community, that's, you know, in an Islamic community. But through a series of events, I, I won't get into all that happened, but through a series of events, she actually ca- came to hear about Jesus and became a follower of Jesus, which was just unheard of, especially in her community and especially to her friends and her family. And because she was a Christian in that culture, she was persecuted and began socially, economically, emotionally, but then it didn't take long for it to be physically as well. And on one particular occasion, she was being beaten by a pretty prominent leader in that area. He had some measure of authority over about 150 or so um, Islamic mosques in, in that area in, in Ethiopia and the surrounding areas. And, and so, he, I mean, he's physically beating her, right? And in the midst of the violence that's being done to her, she said to this man through her tears, Isa will find you. Isa being the name of Jesus in her language. Only when she said it through her tears, she didn't say it vindictively like, Isa will find you. He's going to come and get you, and you're going to get what's coming to you. But rather, she said it with compassion and love. Isa will find you. He will come to you. And in doing so, the persecutor, or the persecuted was blessing the persecutor. In essence, it was her way of saying and praying and hoping that Jesus would get a hold of him just like he had gotten a hold of of her. And this man was taken aback by her response. And so he went back to read more about this Esau. He read about how he was a prophet and even thought by some to be the son of God and how he was crucified. And some of his disciples even believed that he was raised from the dead. And while he had trouble wrapping his mind around this foolishness that he thought was foolishness, he was intrigued by her spirit and her allegiance to Esau, to Jesus, and her willingness to suffer for him. And so he kept reading about Esau kept opening his heart a little bit more, even started, as he described it, having dreams where Esau was speaking to him. And before long, he found himself not only being pursued by Esau, but he himself pursuing Esau, Jesus. And this former Islamic religious leader who was persecuting Christians himself became a Christian and eventually went on to plant churches throughout Ethiopia and East Africa. And if that story sounds familiar, it probably does because we read a similar one in the New Testament by a guy named Saul who later became Paul. Remember him? The persecutor becoming the proclaimer. And so you could say that Esau found him all right and that he found Esau. And he found Esau, Jesus, through a woman that he was persecuting. And it all began with the seed of that woman blessing her persecutor. And that seed became a tree and that tree became a forest. 
That woman had the genes for loving her enemy. And look where it led. I'm not saying it's always going to work out that perfectly. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that's always a possibility. And you and I have those same genes too. And there's no telling what might happen with the seeds that you and I sow in our lives. So what do you say we go the way of Jesus? That Isa may be found in us and through us as well.